Chapter Eight, Part Two of History of the Catholic Church from the Renaissance to the French Revolution, Volume Two, by Reverend James McCaffrey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Very early in his reign, Henry the Eighth had dreamt of the complete subjugation of Ireland, but it was only after the successful overthrow of the Geraldine Rebellion, fifteen thirty-four to five, that the realization of these dreams seemed to be within measurable reach the boldness and military genius of lord leonard grey bade fair to bring all ireland within the sphere of english jurisdiction until the religious crisis arose to complicate the issues many of the irish princes took offence at the doctrine of royal supremacy the attack on images pictures pilgrimages relics etc and at the desperate efforts that were being made to drive out entirely the monks and nuns during the years fifteen thirty seven and fifteen thirty eight rumours of a great confederation reached the ears of the english officials it was represented that con o'neill manus o'donnell o'brien of thomond the de burgos of connaught and the earl of desmond had joined hands to protect the young garrett fitzgerald and to defend the authority of the pope messengers it was said were passing constantly from ireland to scotland and from scotland to rome it was reported in 1539 that the Irish princes regarded Henry VIII as a heretic who had forfeited all title to the lordship of Ireland, that they were determined to uphold the authority of the Pope, that they expected help from the Emperor, from France, and from Scotland, and that if an invasion were attempted, not even the Anglo-Irish of the Pale could be relied upon on account of their attachment to the Pope and to the Geraldines but the successful expeditions against both the north and south undertaken by the deputy in fifteen thirty nine seems to have put an end to all concerted defence and to have reduced the irish princes to a state of utter helplessness one after another they hastened to make their submission to accept titles and honours and money from the king and to consent to hold their territories by royal patent already in fifteen thirty four the earl of armand had accepted the religious policy of henry the eighth and the hope of scoring a triumph over his old rivals, the Geraldines. Three years later, 1537, MacGill of Ossory promised faithfully to abolish the usurped jurisdiction of the Pope, to have the English language spoken in his territories, and to send his son to be brought up with a knowledge of the English language and customs. In return for this he received a royal grant of his land and possessions, was created baron of Coulthill and Castleton, and was promised a seat in the House of Lords, a favour which he obtained in 1543, when he was appointed a peer, with the title of Baron of Upper Ossory. Brian O'Connor of Offaly and his rival, Cahir, made their submission in March 1538. They renounced the jurisdiction of the Pope, agreed to hold their lands from the King, and to abandon all claims to tribute or black rent from their neighbours of the Pale. Brian O'Connor was created Baron of Offaly. He was followed in his submission by the Earl of Desmond, 1541, MacWilliam Burke, O'Brien of Thomond, Manus O'Donnell, August, 1541, and finally by Con O'Neill, 1542. All these, together with a host of minor chieftains and dependents, renounced the authority of the Pope, accepted regrants of their lands from the king, begged for English titles, and did not think it beneath their dignity to accept gifts of money and robes con o'neill became earl of tyrone his son matthew baron of dungannon o'brien earl of thomond his nephew donno baron of ibricken mcwilliam burke earl of clanrickard while knighthoods were distributed freely among the lesser nobles 
although there may have existed in the minds of the irish chieftains a certain amount of confusion about the temporal and spiritual jurisdiction of the pope especially as the popes seem to have claimed a peculiar sovereignty in ireland yet it is impossible to suppose that they could have acted in good faith in signing the documents of submission to which they attached their signatures that they recognized the dangerous and heretical tendencies of henry's religious policy is evident enough from the correspondence of the years 1537 to 39 and that they never made any serious efforts to carry out the terms of these agreements must be admitted it is quite possible that like the noblemen of england they were personally willing to acquiesce in henry the eighth's religious policy for the sake of securing good terms for themselves but that they found it impossible to do anything on account of the opposition of the vast body of the people henry the eighth recognized that he was not in a position to enforce his authority in case of o'brien o'donnell o'neill mcwilliam burke etc and hence he advised his officials to seek to win these over by kindness and persuasion rather than by force in particular they were to endeavour to persuade them discreetly to suppress the religious houses in their territories but at the same time no attempt was to be made to press them over much in any vigorous sort o'brien of thomond and desmond were not unwilling to share in the plunder of the monasteries but as a rule the condition of affairs as regards religion was but slightly affected by the submissions of the chieftains the new deputy anthony st leger fifteen forty was well fitted to profit by the military successes of lord grey as a royal commissioner three years before he had ample opportunity of knowing the condition of ireland the characters of the principal leaders and the inducements by which they might be tempted to acknowledge the authority of the king of england he relied upon diplomatic rather than military pressure and he was so completely successful that the privy council could report in fifteen forty two that ireland was at peace already in fifteen thirty seven aylin the master of the rolls had called the attention of the royal commissioners to the fact that many of the irish regarded the pope as the temporal sovereign of ireland and the king of england only as lord of ireland by virtue of the papal authority and advised them that henry should be proclaimed king of ireland by an act of parliament this advice was approved warmly by staples bishop of meath fifteen thirty eight and was endorsed by the deputy and council in a letter addressed to henry the eighth in december fifteen forty the suggestion was accepted by the king who empowered st leisure to summon a parliament to give it effect fifteen forty one parliament met in june fifteen forty one how many members attended the house of commons or what particular districts were represented is not known for certain but in all probability it was only from the eastern and southern counties and cities that deputies were appointed in the house of lords there were present two archbishops together with twelve bishops the earls of ormond and desmond and a number of viscounts lords and barons nearly all of whom belonged to the anglo-irish faction o'brien of thomond did not attend but he sent deputies to represent him o'donnell and o'neill held themselves aloof from the proceedings and donnell o'brien mcwilliam burke cahir mccart cavanagh o'reilly phelan roe o'neill of clandeboy and cadal o'more attended in person but were not allowed to take an active part in the proceedings or to vote a bill was introduced by st leger bestowing on henry the eighth the title of king of ireland and was read three times in the house of lords in one day the next day it was passed by the house of commons 
it was agreed that the monarch should be styled henry the eighth by the grace of god king of england france and ireland defender of the faith and of the church of england and also of ireland on earth the supreme head the proclamation it was reported was received with joyous acclamation in dublin where a modified general amnesty was declared in honour of the happy event the report of what had taken place produced undoubtedly a great effect on those princes who still held aloof so that before the end of the year fifteen forty two even con o'neill had made an ignominious peace with the government while the questions of royal supremacy and the jurisdiction of the pope were being debated in parliament fifteen thirty six to seven the bishops and proctors of the clergy incurred the wrath of brown and the english officials generally by their courageous resistance to the new proposals showing thereby that they had no sympathy with the anti-roman measures nor is there any reason to suppose that any considerable body of them adopted a different attitude though the submission of their english brethren could not have failed to produce some effect on them particularly as some of them were englishmen themselves and many of them must have received their education at some of the english universities in addition to brown who boasted of being only a king's bishop the only men who can be proved to have taken an active part in propagating the new views were edmund staples of meath and richard nangle the bishop whom henry the eighth endeavoured to intrude into comfort fifteen thirty six the former of these was an englishman appointed by the pope fifteen twenty nine at the request of henry the eighth as might have been expected he took the side of the king against the earl of kildare and when the struggle began in ireland between the friends and the opponents of royal supremacy in ireland he joined the former like so many of the other reformers he showed his anxiety for the gospel by taking to himself a wife and by appropriating for his own use the goods of the church but there is no evidence that his efforts produced any effect on the great body of his clergy Richard Nangle of Clonfort found himself opposed by Roland de Burgo, the bishop provided by the Pope to the See of Clonfort, February 1539. Brown announced that he intended personally to carry the light of the gospel wherever English was understood, and that he had secured a suffragan in the person of Dr. Nangle, bishop of Clonfort, to set forth God's word and the king's cause in the Irish tongue. Owing to the state of open hostility existing between Brown and Staples, the archbishop did not regard the latter as a fellow labourer but evidently at this period these were the only three bishops on whom any reliance could be placed by henry the eighth similarly in a document drawn up in fifteen forty two entitled certain devices for the reformation of ireland brown and staples alone were mentioned as favouring the gospel or as capable of instructing the irish bishops of this realm causing them to relinquish and renounce all popish or papistical doctrine and to set forth within each of their dioceses the true word of god but though none of the irish bishops appointed by the pope with a single exception of staples of meath took any active steps to assist the king few of them entered the list boldly in defence of the roman see and many of them like their english brethren tried to temporize in the hope that the storm might soon blow past edmund butler the illegitimate son of sir piers butler afterwards earl of ormond seems to have joined with the rest of his family in acknowledging royal supremacy he took a seat in the privy council acted as intermediary between the government and the earl of desmond signed as a witness the document by which the latter renounced the authority of the pope accepted for himself portions of the property of the suppressed franciscan friary at cashel and was present at the parliament of fifteen forty one hugh of servalen of clogger was appointed by the pope in fifteen thirty five 
but he went to london in fifteen forty two as chaplain to con o'neill surrendered his bulls of appointment took the oath prescribed by henry the eighth and accepted a grant by royal patent of his diocese together with a pension of forty pounds a year needless to say he was repudiated by the pope who appointed another to take his place and was driven from his see john quinn of limerick was reported by lord grey to have taken the oath of royal supremacy in fifteen thirty eight but the deputy's leanings towards rome even on this journey were reclaimed so frequently by his opponents on the council that it would be difficult to believe him did not the name of the bishop of limerick appear amongst the witnesses to the submission of the earl of desmond though his attitude at this period was at least doubtful it is certain that he stood loyal to rome once he discovered the schismatical tendency of the new movement since it was found necessary by the government to attempt to displace him in fifteen fifty one by the appointment of one who was likely to be more pliable the fact that some of the bishops surrendered the religious houses of which they were commendatory priors as for example edmund nugent of kilmore milo baron of ossory and walter wellesley of kildare and accepted pensions from the king as a compensation for the loss they sustained by the suppression of the monasteries creates a grave suspicion of their orthodoxy though it does not prove that they accepted royal supremacy baron was undoubtedly in close communication with the government officials and nugent seems to have been removed by the pope again several of the bishops roland de burgo of clonfort florence kerwin of clonmacnoise eugene mcginnis of down and connor and thady reynolds of kildare surrendered the bulls they had received from rome and accepted grants of their diocese from the king such a step however affords no decisive evidence of disloyalty to the holy see for years a sharp controversy had been waged between the kings of england and the pope regarding the temporalities of bishoprics the popes claimed to have the right of appointment to both the spiritualities and the temporalities and gave expression to these claims in the bulls of appointment the kings on their part asserted their jurisdiction over the temporalities and to safeguard their rights they insisted that the bishop-elect should surrender the papal grant in return for a royal grant such a custom was well known before any schismatical tendencies had made themselves felt in england and compliance with it would not prove that the bishops involved looked upon the king as the source of their spiritual jurisdiction the main point to be considered in case of the bishops who surrendered their monasteries or their bulls is what kind of oath if any were they obliged to take if they consented to swear the former renunciation prescribed for irish bishops by the king their orthodoxy could not well be defended but it is possible that as henry the eighth did not wish to press matters to extremes with the irish princes he may have adopted an equally prudent policy in case of the bishops and contented himself with the oath of allegiance fully cognizant of the importance of winning the bishops to his side henry the eighth took care to appoint his own nominees as soon as a vacancy occurred by doing so he hoped to secure the submission of the clergy and people and to obtain for himself the fees paid formerly to rome during the ten years between fifteen thirty six and fifteen forty six he appointed dominic turry to cork richard nangle to clonfort christopher bachan already bishop of kilmacdoll to tuam alexander devereux to ferns william mee to kildare Richard O'Farrell, late prior of Granard, to Ardall, Aenys O'Herman, or Heffernan, late preceptor of Aeney, to Emily, George Dowdall, late prior of Ardie, to Armagh, Connaught O'Sigal, a chaplain of Manus O'Donnell, to Elfin, and Cornelius O'Dea, a chaplain of O'Brien, of Thoman, to Killaloe. 
though there can be little doubt that some of these received their appointments as a reward for their acceptance of royal supremacy it is difficult to determine how far they were committed to the religious policy of henry the eighth it is certain that none of them with the possible exception of nangle took an active part in favouring the cause of the reformation in ireland once they understood the real issues at stake and that the fact of their being opposed in every single case by a lawful bishop appointed by the pope rendered it impossible for them to do much however willing they might have been to comply with the wishes of the king during this critical period in irish history pope paul the third was in close correspondence with several of the irish bishops and lay princes time and again the officials in ireland complain of the rome runners of the provisions made by the pope to irish bishoprics of the messengers passing to and fro between ireland and rome and of the pope's cooperation in organizing the geraldine league in fifteen thirty eight and fifteen thirty nine it should be noted however that the silly letter attributed by robert ware to paul the third wherein he is supposed to have warned o'neill that he and his counsellors in rome had discovered from a prophecy of st lazarian that whenever the church in ireland should fall the church of rome should fall also is a pure forgery published merely to discredit the pope and the roman see undoubtedly paul the third was gravely concerned about the progress of a movement that threatened to involve ireland in the english schism and was anxious to encourage the bishops and princes to stand firm in their resistance to royal supremacy in fifteen thirty nine reports reached rome that george cromer the archbishop of armagh who had resisted the measures directed against the pope during the years fifteen thirty six to thirty eight had yielded and as a result the administration of the see was committed fifteen thirty nine to robert watchope a distinguished scotch theologian then resident in rome what proofs were adduced in favour of cromer's guilt are not known but it is certain that the official correspondence of the period will be searched in vain for any evidence to show that cromer accepted either in theory or in practice the ecclesiastical headship of henry the eighth he held aloof from the meetings of the privy council never showed the slightest sympathy with the action of the archbishop of dublin and though his name appears on some of the lists of the spiritual peers in the parliament of fifteen forty one the official port of st leaguer makes it certain that he did not attend it is quite possible that the archbishop did not find himself in agreement with the political schemes whereby the irish princes and the king of scotland were to join hands for the overthrow of english authority in ireland and on this account the king of scotland was desirous of having him removed to make way for his agent at the roman court the new administrator of Ramal, robert watchup though suffering from weak sight was recognized as one of the ablest theologians of his day he took a prominent part in the religious conference at worms fifteen forty and at the diet of ratisbon fifteen forty one he attended the council of trent during its earlier sessions and rendered very valuable assistance particularly in connection with the decrees on justification the date of his consecration cannot be determined with certainty probably he was not consecrated until news of the death of cromer fifteen forty three reached rome in fifteen forty nine he set out for scotland and apparently landed on the coast of donegal in the hope of inducing o'neill and o'donnell to cooperate with the french and the scots his efforts were not however crowned with success finding himself denounced to the government by o'neill and by george dowdle who had been appointed to the see of armagh by the king he returned to rome where he was granted faculties as legate to ireland but he died in a few months before he could make any attempt to regain possession of his diocese 
before the death of cromer henry the eighth against the wishes of some members of his council in ireland who favoured the nomination of the son of lord delvin had selected george dowdle late prior of ardee to succeed him in armagh dowdle went to london in company with con o'neill and received from the king a yearly pension of twenty pounds together with the promise of the archbishopric of armagh though he must have given satisfactory assurances to the king on the question of royal supremacy dowdle was still in his heart a supporter of rome and as shall be seen he left ireland for a time rather than agree to the abolition of the mass and the other sweeping religious innovations that were undertaken in the reign of henry the sixth at the urgent request of robert watchup paul the third determined to send some of the disciples of st ignatius to ireland to encourage the clergy and people to stand firm in defence of their religion st ignatius himself drew up a set of special instructions for the guidance of those who were selected for this important mission the two priests appointed for the work pascasius broet and alphonsus salmeron together with franciscus zapata who offered to accompany them reached scotland early in february fifteen forty one and having fortified themselves by letters of recommendation from the king of scotland addressed to o'neill and others they landed in ireland about the beginning of lent their report speaks badly for the religious condition of the country at the period they could not help noting the fact that all the great princes with one exception had renounced the authority of the pope and had refused to hold any communications with them that the pastors had neglected their duty and that the people were rude and ignorant though at the same time not unwilling to listen to their instructions in many particulars this unfavourable report was well founded especially in regard to the nobles but it should be remembered that these jesuits remained only a few weeks in the country that they were utterly unacquainted with the manners and customs of the people and that it would have been impossible for them to have obtained reliable information about the religious condition of ireland in the course of such a short visit it should be noted too that they placed the responsibility for the failure of their mission on the king of scotland who failed to stand by his promises during the last years of henry the eighth's reign st leisure continued his efforts to reduce the country to subjection not by force but by persuasion the religious issue was not put forward prominently and with the exception of grants of monastic lands and possessions very little seems to have been done the deputy's letters contain glowing reports of his successes in, in the course of the warm controversy that raged between him and john Aylin, the chancellor during the years fifteen forty six and fifteen forty seven the various reports forwarded to england are sufficient to show that outside the pale the english authorities had made little progress although st leaguer was able to furnish a striking testimony from the council as to his success and although a letter was sent by the irish princes in praise of henry the eighth fifteen forty six proofs are not wanting that henry's policy had met with only partial success according to a letter sent by archbishop brown in fifteen forty six the irish people were not reconciled to english methods of government and according to the chancellor the king's writ did not run in the irish districts the irishmen who pretended to submit did not keep to their solemn promises they still followed their own native laws regardless of english statutes and the king could not get possession of the abbeys or abbey lands situated within their territories even the council which sought to defend the deputy against these attacks was forced to admit that his majesty's laws were not current in the irish districts one of the last steps taken by the council at the suggestion of henry the eighth was the appointment of a vice-regent in spirituals 
for the clergy to grant dispensations as they were granted in england by cranmer so as to prevent the irish from having recourse to rome for such grants henry the eighth died with the knowledge that he had done more than any of his predecessors for the subjugation of ireland the policy that was devised writes cusack lord chancellor of ireland for the sending of the earls of desmond thomond clanrickard and tyron and the baron of upper ossory o'carroll mcgenis and others into england was a great help of bringing those countries to good order for none of them who went into england committed harm upon the king's majesty's subjects the winning of the earl of desmond was the winning of the rest of munster with small charges the making of o'brien an earl made all that country obedient the making of mcwilliam earl of clanrickard made all that country during his time obedient as it is now the making of MacGillapatrick, baron of Upperossery, hath made his country obedient, and the having their lands by Dublin is such a gauge upon them as they will not forfeit the same through wilful folly. As far as religion was concerned, however, there was very little change. The mass was celebrated and the sacraments were administered as before. Here and there some of the bishops and clergy might have been inclined to temporize on the question of royal supremacy, but whatever documents they might have signed, or whatever appointments they might have accepted from Henry's agents, the vast body of the princes, bishops, clergy, and people had no desire to separate themselves from the universal church. Henry the Eighth had, however, rendered unintentionally an immense service to religion in Ireland by preparing the way for the destruction of royal interference in Episcopal and other ecclesiastical appointments, and of the terrible abuse of lay patronage that had been the curse of the Catholic Church in Ireland for centuries. All these abuses having been transferred to the small knot of English officials and Anglo-English residents who coalesced to form the Protestant sect, the Catholic Church was at last free to pursue her peaceful mission without let or hindrance from within. The accession of Edward VI made no notable change in Irish affairs. The deputy, St. Leger, was retained in office, as were also most of the old officials. Some new members, including George Dowdell, Archbishop of Armagh, were added to the council, and arrangements were made for the collection of the revenues from the suppressed monasteries and religious houses. A royal commission was issued to the deputy, the Lord Chancellor, and the Bishop of Meath, to grant faculties and dispensations in as ample a manner as the Archbishop of Canterbury. From the terms of this commission, it is clear that the royal advisers were determined to derive some financial profit from the royal supremacy. The fever dispensations for solemnizing marriage, without the proclamation of the bans, was fixed at six shillings, eight pence, about three pounds, four shillings. For marriage within the prohibited times, at ten shillings, for marriage within the prohibited times and without bans, at thirteen shillings, four pence, and for marriages to be celebrated without the parish church of the contracting parties, at five shillings. Similarly, an order was sent that the plate and ornaments of St. Patrick's Cathedral should be dispatched by some trustworthy messenger to Bristol, there to be delivered to the treasurer of the mint. This command must not have been carried out completely, because seven months later, January 1548, the dean of St. Patrick's was requested to deliver over for the use of the mint the one thousand ounces of plate of crosses and such like things that remained in his hands. From the very beginning of Edward's reign, the protector set himself to overthrow the Catholic Church in Ireland by suppressing the Mass and enforcing the Lutheran, or rather the Calvinist teaching, regarding transubstantiation and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. The injunctions of Edward VI and the homilies of Cramner were dispatched for the guidance of the Archbishop of Dublin, 
and of those who like him were supposed to favor religious innovations in like manner the english communion service fifteen forty eight and the first book of common prayer fifteen forty nine were made obligatory in those districts where the english language was spoken or understood as in england the great subject of controversy in ireland during the early years of edward's reign was the blessed eucharist a scotch preacher had been sent into ireland during the year fifteen forty eight to prepare the way for the abolition of the mass by attacking the real presence of christ in the sacrament of the altar the archbishop of dublin who had been noted previously for his radical tendencies objected to such doctrines and complaints were forwarded against him to the council he was charged with having leased or otherwise disposed of the greater portion of the property of his diocese to his children and favourites with having failed to set forth his majesty's injunctions and homilies with having calumniated the deputy and held secret communications with the earl of desmond and other irish princes and with having neglected to preach a single sermon between november fifteen forty seven and september fifteen forty eight when he took occasion to inveigh against the scotch preacher who condemned the abuse of the bishop of rome's masses and ceremonies about the same time the deputy felt obliged to reprove the treasurer of christ's church for having refused to allow the english communion service to be followed in that church and to warn him of the punishment in store for him if he persisted in his obstinacy but if brown were somewhat backward in adapting himself to the new theories his rival staples of meath who had prided himself hitherto on his conservative tendencies hastened to the relief of the government he went to dublin to support the scotch preacher in his attack on the mass and the blessed eucharist but if we are to believe his own story his stay in dublin was hardly less agreeable than was the welcome that awaited him on his return to meath his friends assured him that the country was up in arms against him a lady whose child he had baptized and named after himself sought to change the name of her baby for she would not have him bear the name of a heretic a gentleman would not permit his child to be confirmed by one who had denied the sacrament of the altar many people who heard that the bishop was going to preach at navan the following sunday declared their intention of absenting themselves lest they should learn heresy a clergyman of his own promotion came to him in tears and having asked permission to speak his mind freely informed him that he was detested by the people since he had taken the side of the heretics and preached against the eucharist and saints that the curses poured out upon him were more numerous than the hairs of his head and that he would do well to take heed as his life was in danger sir edward bellingham succeeded st leger as deputy and arrived in may fifteen forty eight during the early months of his term of office he was busily engaged against the o'connors of offaly the o'carrolls and others who threatened the pale once more his efforts were crowned with considerable success and during the year fifteen forty nine he found himself in a position to push forward with the religious campaign from inquiries made he learned that in all munster thoming connaught and ulster the monasteries and other religious establishments remained and that they followed still the old religious practices he wrote to the secretary of the protector asking him to inform his master of the lack of good shepherds in ireland to illuminate the hearts of the flock of christ with his most true and infallible word taking care at the same time to recommend the protector to appoint the clergymen who had been brought over from england to vacant bishoprics so that the public funds might be relieved by the withdrawal of their pensions the mayor and corporation of kilkenny were ordered to see that the priests of the city should assemble to meet the deputy and members of the council 
they promised that all the clergy should be present without fail but as shall be seen the instructions of sir edward bellingham and his colleagues produced but little effect even in the very stronghold of the ormonds fifteen forty nine walter cowley was sent on a commission into the diocese of cashel to abolish idolatry papistry the mass sacrament and the like but he complained that the archbishop instead of being present to assist him tarried in dublin although he had been warned that his presence was required the truth is that though the archbishop as one of the butlers was willing to go to great lengths in upholding the policy of edward the sixth he had no intention of taking part in a campaign against the mass or the blessed eucharist the latter written by this prelate february fifteen forty eight in which he praised highly the conduct of walter cowley who played such a prominent part in the suppression of the monasteries and the seizure of ecclesiastical property is often quoted as a proof that he was strongly in favour of the reformation but such a statement could be made only by one who has failed to understand the difference between ormondism and protestantism and the relations of both cowley and the archbishop to the former bellingham was recalled to england in fifteen forty nine and soon after his departure new disturbances broke out in ireland desmond and o'brien were regarded as unreliable a union between the two great rival families of the ormonds and the desmonds was not improbable and to make matters worse news arrived in dublin that robert watchup the papal archbishop of armagh had arrived in the north to bring about a league between o'donnell o'neill the scotch and the french fifteen fifty Dowdle, who had been introduced into Armagh by royal authority, reported the presence of his rival in Innishowen, and O'Neill and Manus O'Donnell pledged themselves to resist the invaders. A council hastened to thank the northern chieftains for their refusal to hold correspondence with the French emissaries who had accompanied Watchup, and warned them that the French intended to reduce the Irish to a state of slavery, and that the French nobility were so savage and ferocious that it would be much better to live under the turkish yoke than under the rule of france in july fifteen fifty st leger was sent once more as deputy to ireland he was instructed to set forth god's service according to our the king's ordinances in england and all places where the inhabitants or a convenient number of them understand that tongue where the inhabitants did not understand it the english is to be translated truly into the irish tongue till such time as the people might be brought to understand english but as usual the financial side of the reformation was not forgotten the deputy was commanded to give orders that no sale or alienation be made of any church goods bells or chantry and free chapel lands without the royal assent and that inventories were to be made in every parish of such goods ornaments jewels and bells of chantry or free chapel lands and of all other lands given to any church lest some lewd persons might embezzle the same. On his arrival in Dublin, St. Leger found affairs in very unsatisfactory condition. I never saw the land, he wrote, so far out of good order, for in the forts there are as many harlots as soldiers, and there was during these three years no kind of divine service, neither communion nor yet other service, having but one sermon made in that space, which the Bishop of Meath made, who had so little reverence at that time, as he had no great haste since to preach there. Rumours were once more afloat that the French and Scotch were about to create a diversion in Ireland. A large French fleet was partially wrecked off the Irish coast, and some of the Geraldine agents in Paris boasted openly that the Irish princes were determined to 
either stand or die for the maintenance of religion and for the continuance of god's service in such sort as they had received it from their fathers while st leger was not slow in taking measures to resist a foreign invasion he did not neglect the instructions he had received about introducing the book of common prayer in place of the mass he procured several copies of the english service and sent them to different parts of the country but instead of having it translated into irish he had it rendered into latin for the use of those districts which did not understand english and the hope possibly that he might thereby deceive the people by making them believe that it was still the mass to which they had been accustomed apparently however the new liturgy met with a stubborn resistance in limerick although the city authorities were reported to be favourable the bishop john quinn refused to give his consent to the proposed change and throughout the country generally the deputy was forced to confess that it was hard to plant the new religion in men's minds he requested that an express royal command should be addressed to the people generally to accept the change and that a special commission should be given to himself to enforce the liturgy the formal order for the introduction of the english service was forwarded to st leisure in february fifteen fifty one and was promulgated in the beginning of march bishop quinn of limerick was forced to resign the temporalities of his see to make way for william casey who was expected to be more compliant a number of bishops and clergy were summoned to meet in conference in dublin to consider the change at this conference the reforming party met with the strongest opposition from the primate of armagh although george dowdle had accepted the primatial see from the hands of the king and had tried to unite loyalty to rome and to henry the eighth he had no intention of supporting an heretical movement having for its object the abolition of the mass from the very beginning of the protector's rule he had adopted an attitude of hostility to the proposed changes as is evident from the friendly letter of warning addressed to him by the lord deputy bellingham the primate defended steadfastly the jurisdiction of the bishop of rome and refused to admit that the king had any authority to introduce such sweeping reforms by virtue of his office finding that his words failed to produce any effect on the deputy he left the conference together with his suffragans except staples of meath and repaired to his own diocese to encourage the people and clergy to stand firm st leger then handed the royal commission to brown who declared that he submitted to the king as jesus christ did to caesar in all things just and lawful making no question why or wherefore as we own him our true and lawful king though st leger pretended to be a strong supporter of the new religion yet according to archbishop brown he contented himself with the formal promulgation of the royal orders he himself on his arrival in ireland assisted publicly at mass in Christ's church to the comfort of his too many like papists and to the discouragement of the professors of god's word he allowed the celebration of mass holy water candlemas candles and such like to continue in the diocese of the primate and elsewhere without protest or punishment he seemed even to take the side of the primate at the council board and sent a message to the earl of tyrone to follow the counsel and advice of that good father sage senator and godly bishop my lord primate in everything he went so far as to present the archbishop of dublin with a number of books written in defence of the mass and transubstantiation and when the archbishop ventured to remonstrate with him on his want of zeal for god's word the only reply he received was go to go to your matters of religion will mar all st leger's main object was the pacification of the country and the extension of english power both of which he well knew would be endangered by an active campaign against the mass 
St. Leger was recalled, and Sir James Crofts, who had been sent on a special commission to Ireland a few months earlier, was appointed deputy in his place, April 1551. His instructions in regard to the Book of Common Prayer and the inventory of the confiscated church plate were couched in terms similar to those given to his predecessor. Anxious from the beginning to conciliate Primate Dowdle, he forwarded to him a respectful letter, June 1551, calling his attention to the respect paid by Christ himself and St. Peter to the imperial authority, offering his services as mediator between the primate and his opponents, Brown and Staples, and warning him of the likelihood of much more serious changes which he, the deputy, pledged himself, if possible, to resist. To this communication the primate sent an immediate reply, in which he offered to meet his opponents in conference, though he could hold out no hope of agreement, as their judgments, opinions, and consciences were different. The conference took place at St. Mary's Abbey in the presence of the deputy. The Archbishop of Dublin, Staples of Meath, and Thomas Lancaster, who had been intruded into the See of Kildare by royal authority, attended to defend the new teaching against the primate. The subjects discussed were the Mass and the Blessed Virgin. Staples took the leading part on the side of the reformers, and, as Dowdle had anticipated, no agreement could be arrived at. The primate appealed to the terms of the oath of loyalty to the Pope, taken by both himself and his opponents at their consecration, but Staples had no difficulty in proclaiming that he refused to consider himself bound by this oath. The meeting broke up without any result. Dowdle, having forwarded a declaration to the Lord Chancellor that he could never be bishop where the Holy Mass was abolished, fled from Ireland. Brown wrote immediately to the Earl of Warwick, beseeching him to confer on Dublin all the primatial rights enjoyed hitherto by Armagh, while the deputy sought for instructions about the vacant see of Armagh, in November 1551. Dowdle was deprived of his diocese, and the primacy was transferred to Dublin, 1551. Still, Cross was forced to admit that the Reformation was making but little progress in Ireland. The bishops and clergy gave him no support, and in spite of all he could do, the old ceremonies were continued. He besought his friends in England to send over reliable men from England to fill the vacant bishoprics, and to set forth the king's proceeding, or if they could not do that, to send some learned men to remain with him, by whose counsel he might better direct the blind and obstinate bishops. The sees of Armagh, Cashel, and Ossory were then vacant, and, as the deputy pointed out, it was of vital importance to the reformers that reliable priests should be appointed. Cranmer nominated four clerics for the see of Armagh, from whom the king selected Richard Turner, a vicar in Kent, but he declined the honour, preferring to run the risk of being hanged by rebels than to go to Armagh, where he should be obliged to preach to the walls and the stalls, for the people understand no English. Cramner tried to reassure him by reminding him that if he will take the pains to learn the Irish tongue, which with diligence he may do in a year or two, then both his doctrines shall be more acceptable not only unto his diocese, but also throughout all Ireland. Notwithstanding this glorious prospect, Turner remained obdurate in his refusal, and at last Armagh was offered to and accepted by one new Goodacre. Cashel was, apparently, considered still more hopeless, and as nobody upon whom the government could rely was willing to take the risk, the see was left vacant during the remainder of Edward Sixth reign. Though Cross was strongly in favour of the new religion, he had the temerity to suggest that Thomas Leverus, the tutor and former protector of the young heir of Kildare, should be appointed to Cashel or Ossory. 
for learning discretion and good living he wrote he is the meekest man in this realm and best able to preach both in the english and the irish tongue i heard him preach such a sermon as in my simple opinion i heard not in many years but as leverus was well known to be not only a geraldine but also a strong papist the deputy's recommendation was set at naught and the see of ossery was conferred on john bale the latter was an ex-Carmelite friar, who, according to himself, was won from the ignorance and blindness of papistry by a temporal lord, although, according to others, his wife Dorothy had as great a hand in that happy work as the lord. On account of his violent and seditious sermons, he was thrown into prison, from which he was released by Cromwell, with whom he gained great favor by a scurrilous and abusive plays directed against the doctrines and practices of the church. On the fall of his patron in 1540, Bale found it necessary to escape with his wife and children to Germany, whence he returned to England after the death of Henry VIII. He was a man of considerable ability, with little regard for truth if he could increase the enemies of popery, and so coarse and vulgar in his language and ideas that his works have been justly described by one whose Protestantism cannot be questioned as a dunghill. The consecration of Goodacre and Bale was fixed for February 1553, and the consecrating prelates were to be Brown, Lancaster, who had been intruded by the king into Kildare, and Eugene Maginus of Down. At the consecration ceremony itself, a peculiar difficulty arose. Although the first book of common prayer had been legalized in Ireland by royal proclamation, the ordinal and the second book of common prayer had never been enforced by similar warrant, and their use was neither obligatory nor lawful. Bale demanded, however, that they should be followed. When the Dean of Christ's Church insisted on the use of the Roman ordinal, he was denounced by the bishop-elect as an ass-headed dean and a blockhead who cared only for his belly. And when Brown ventured to suggest that the ceremony should be delayed until a decision could be sought, he was attacked as an apicure, whose only object was to take up the proxies of any bishopric to his own gluttonous use. The violence of Bale carried all before it, even to the concession of common bread for the communion service. Goodacre was by English law the Archbishop of Armagh, but the threatening attitude of Shane O'Neill prevented him from ever having the pleasure of seeing his own cathedral. Bale was, however, more fortunate. He made his way to Kilkenny, where he proceeded to destroy the images and pictures in St. Canice's, and to rail against the Mass and the Blessed Eucharist but only to find that his own chapter, the clergy, and the vast majority of the people were united in opposition to him. End of chapter 8, part 2